It is the fourth Friday of the month, and that means it is time for Literary Ashland. My name is Michael Neiman. And I'm Ed Battistella. And we got a couple of announcements here. It's Wednesday, August 2nd at 3.30. There'll be a talk at the Ashland Library by Lee Baldwin. Uh, He'll talk about his approach to writing fiction and science fiction in particular. He's the author of Angle of Attack, a book he will also talk about at that particular event that is at the Ashland Library at 3.30. Also coming August 4th through 6th is the annual conference of the Willamette Writers in Portland, Oregon. You can still register for the conference on their particular website. Right, And today there's the giant clearance event hosted by the Friends of the Medford Public Library. Thousands of donated books and materials will be available at the giant book clearance event um, Friday, today, July 28th, from noon to four, and tomorrow, July 29th, from 11 to 4. That's at the Medford Library, 205 South Central Avenue. And they tell us that this year's event is the largest yet. Three rooms of books, large selections of sci-fi fiction and other categories, as well as record albums and audiovisual materials. Shoppers can take all the books they like and leave a donation of their choice. So they're not actually auctioning off giants. Mm -hmm. Um, For more information, call the Friends of the Medford Public Library at 541-779-3246 or visit medfordfriends.org. And I was going to mention a retroactive event. You're just back from the Thriller Fest in New York, where you were on a panel with some yeah. um, big-name thriller writers. Indeed. It was a very interesting event. Um, got to talk about international thrillers with a bunch of authors from, actually, everybody was from Europe, come to think of it. Yeah, so that was quite interesting, including a Swedish author whose books had not yet been translated into English. So. Oh, well, something to look for, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was quite interesting, yeah. So I had a good time. That's great. I'm I'm envious. Um, and I'm also envious of today's guest, Amy Miller, one of uh, Ashland's top poets. She's the author of about a dozen poetry and nonfiction chapbooks, including I Am on a River and Cannot Answer by Boat Press, Rough House by White Knuckle Press, Botanica, Tea Before Questions, and Beautiful Slash Brutal. She's taught workshops on writing and publishing for the Jack London Writers Conference, Oregon State Poetry Association, California Writers Club, and San Francisco State University. She was a co-founder of the Piccolo Poetry Series, um, the largest poetry open mic in the San Francisco Peninsula. And she currently works as a publications manager for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I've heard of them. Um, Her work has appeared in Nimrod, Rattle, Willow Springs, The Oregonian, Fine Gardening, and Asimov Science Fiction, among other places. And her article, Anatomy of a Poetry Book, appears in the 2017 Poets Market. She blogs at writersislandblogspot.com And recently she won the Lewis Award from Concrete Wolf Press, which will involve their publishing her full-length poetry manuscript, The Trouble with New England Girls, next year. Mm. So welcome, Amy. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. And I guess in the the Lewis Award for the 
the trouble with New England girls. So I should ask, are you from New England? <laughs> uh, that, I think I will be asked a lot, uh, that a lot over the next couple of years. Um, I'm not a native New Englander, but I lived there in my teenage years. So I went to high school and junior high school there. Um, I'm originally from California, and then my family moved uh, to New England. My dad got a job there. And um, so I... Um, Became kind of uh, torn between the two coasts. Mm -hmm. Grew up on on both ends of the country, and um, in in Massachusetts, I I had a lot of first experiences, first love, first loss. I learned how to drive there. I sort of feel like I became a person there. Mm -hmm. um, so I identified very much as a New Englander for a long time. But now I've been gone. I only lived there for five years. And I'm in my 50s now, so I've lived away from New England much, much longer than, than I lived there, but it's still the place that I go back to over and over again to write about, mm -hmm. um, because so much of my, my personhood was formed there. Well, that's a, yeah, that's an interesting concept. Where's our personhood formed? And that also seems to indicate that the, the duration is not necessarily as important as what happened to you. Yes. Yeah. It was a real mm -hmm. critical time. Mm -hmm. I think I think it is for everybody between the ages of 12 and 17. A lot happens to you then and mm -hmm. you, you form your worldview to some extent at that age mm -hmm. or a lot of it. Um, you really make that transition from the childhood side to the adult side. So you said Massachusetts. Can you be more specific? Mm -hmm. uh, Western Massachusetts. Okay. I was in the Pioneer Valley, the Connecticut River Valley. Yeah. I, I lived in Hartford for oh, no kidding. 20 years. Yeah, so that, was, that was the big city. Well, sort of the big city for us. Quite familiar with <laughs> that. That was the other big city. As a matter of fact, I, I went back to visit some friends. and it's, I lived there for 20 years, and oh, I've wow. been away 10 years. Mm -hmm. And it still seems like those 20 years, they were really important. Yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. It's a beautiful part of the country. Mm -hmm. I think people... Don't know that it's kind of an, the western uh, Western Connecticut, Western Massachusetts mm -hmm. is kind of overlooked uh, because yeah. Boston and New York are right there. But it's mm -hmm. a beautiful area. The, the area that I lived in was um, somewhat depressed at the time. Mm -hmm. There wasn't much industry. Uh, it was an old mill town, like mm -hmm. a lot of those places were, and its mill days were long gone. But the mills were still there. They were kind of turned mm -hmm. into shops and things like that. But these these great old crumbling brick mills were mm -hmm. were all over. Did you start writing there? I, I really did. I, not, my first writing was earlier than that, mm -hmm. when I was probably eight or so. But I really started writing poetry um, in Massachusetts, and I had some great uh, junior high and high school teachers who really, I think, turned me into wanting to be a writer there, wanting to really do something with it. Mm -hmm. so, so you found your way to poetry pretty early, and um, what what are some of the themes of your work? It seems like you really do work in lots of different uh, areas. Yes, I, I'm always I'm always kind of in fear of that question. What do you write about? Some people kind of put it that way, and I I always sort of flippantly say, well, everything, of course, you know, it's all everything's on the canvas. Um, but I tend to come back to the themes of home a lot for that reason that I was saying, because I felt kind of torn between two homes, and I felt um, that I was not part of either, because when I lived in New England, I was not a New Englander, and when I came back to California, I felt like I was no longer a Californian. Um, so that whole concept of where your home is and your home always being somewhere else, that comes up. It still comes up all the time. And I've moved again subsequently a couple of times. Um, so that's a, always a big factor. Um, 
the last few years I've been writing, um, unfortunately, as a lot of people my age do, writing a lot about loss and about grief um, and about um, coming back to grief again and again as if it's a well that's always stocked with all the grief you've ever had. So I find every time there's a subsequent loss, I lost my parents now. Most of um, their generation is gone in my family. Um, cousins are now starting to pass away. Um, friends, etc. Um, even animals in my life, that brings it up too. Um, and every time, it's like I go back to this well, and every loss I've ever had is right there waiting for me again. I can remember them all. And it's like it's a process that you never go through. You're always processing it, so that's that's coming up a lot. And boy, that I um, there are a lot of people writing about that right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to make this too heavy, but I, I mean, was grief a part of your poetry when you were young, and sort of that early twelve to eighteen period? Or I, I, I certainly had plenty of ennui. Okay, uh, so yeah, I, you know, there was a dark side. I think mm. always when I was starting out writing, um, I was writing a lot about. My childhood in California, um, my siblings were all quite a bit older than me. They were all 10 years-ish older than I was. I had four siblings. And so they really went through the whole summer of love, the hippie, the hippie thing um, in the 60s and 70s. And um, they and their friends got into drugs. They got into drinking. They got into guns later on. Um, so it was like this um, this beautiful world that turned very dark within a few years. And one of my relatives was institutionalized, we think, because he took too much acid. Um, and we had another friend, same story with him. He ended up at a mental hospital. Um, and those things were really weighing heavily on my mind as a teenager. So that's that's pretty much where I started out. But then there were also the poems about the guy that I had the crush on and and horses and, you know, all the usual stuff. But um, uh, that, that dark material, I recognized right away that was really fertile ground. Um, it was interesting to me, and um, there was a lot of depth to it, and my teachers responded to it um, more so than the the horse poems, let's say. <laughs> uh, teachers are like that. Yeah. Uh, would, would you read us something? Sure. Let's see. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the title poem from the book uh, that's coming out next year. Uh, so it's called The Trouble with New England Girls. Um, and this kind of sets the tone for a lot of the New England-themed uh, poems that are in the book. The Trouble with New England Girls They think the moon rises and sets. They speak English as if English were their one true tongue. They have hair, and they have teeth, and sometimes they wear bad sweaters, missing a button. They live in houses with mothers for the most part, brothers, dads, dogs patrolling the yards. Sometimes they drive out under the moon. Sometimes they get pregnant and drive to New Jersey. And sometimes they come back married and quiet, or quiet and alone. Sometimes they steal the bus fare to get there and back. They feel the ocean pinning the wrists of the land, the stars looking down, unblinking, 
the moon, with its third-degree light, pounding the truth right out of them. They wish they were Baja girls, shimmering on a beach, not a bus or sweater in sight, and the moon far up there where it belongs. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. That that's really great. It, it's it's got that sort of mill town feel to it. Right. Um, right. Just a, a little bit of hope and desperation all sort of mixed together, mm-hmm. um, and a trip to New Jersey. <laughs> that was where the girls went. Uh, I, and you know, I can't honestly the, remember if they went there to get married because it was the get married younger or something back in the. 70s, or if it was the place to get an abortion, I don't remember. Yeah. Um, but I sure remember girls going to New Jersey. It's an easy place to get lost in. <laughs> um, so, well, let's see. Um, and now I know you've got a, a day job. Um, and, yes. and thanks for thanks for coming in on, I guess, your lunch hour. Or, <laughs> exactly. Um, but um, what's your writing life like? Do you sort of get up early and drink a lot of coffee and write or stay up late or? Oh gosh. Um, my, my writing routine, such as it is, is very haphazard. Um, it changes from, from day to day, month to month. Sometimes I go on little rolls where I'm pretty regular about the time when I write because I do work all day and I have a, I have a really full time job. It really, uh, it takes pretty much all my time and energy during the day. So, um, so I write a lot at night and usually just before bedtime. Um, and I like to write in that, in that space between, um, waking and sleep. So sometimes I'll be falling asleep and then that's when the idea for the poem wants to come and I have to get up and turn on the light and and deal with it. (laughs) Otherwise I, you know, they'll have to take away my poet card if I, if I ignore it. Um, and, and those opportunities don't come again. You know, that poem, when that feeling comes, it's, it's, if I try to sleep on it or I take a few notes or something like that, it never, it never works later on. It's got, I have to have that emotion, that, that series of emotions all together at that time to make it happen. Um, and I, I don't write every day. I'm not one of those folks who says, you know, I have to write every day to, to accomplish what I need to do. Um, if I, if I have some space in my schedule, I'll write quite a bit on the weekends. I, I've been trying in the last few years to do several writing marathons every year, and I've become kind of kind of dependent on those. I don't know if they've become a crutch or a tool. I haven't quite decided which, but um, I do a National Poetry Writing Month every mm-hmm. April. I've been doing that for, I think, six years now um, with a group of people who are actually all over the world, and we, we have a Facebook group. We write our poems and share them on our, our little secret group. And then I do um, a postcard poetry uh, writing marathon, which I'll be starting on Tuesday because it happens in August. And that's really fun because they have to be short. They have to fit on a postcard and then you write it down and you mail it off to somebody else in the group. So you're also just writing to one person. So it's very private and and it's very, for me, it's very low stress because I know only one person's going to see it, usually somebody I don't know. Um, I'll probably never hear from that person. and then, uh, so it can be very first drafty. I'm a lot, um, a lot looser with those those first drafts mm-hmm. than I am with the ones where I share it with a whole group of people on Facebook. I might tinker with it a little bit more then. Um, so I get a lot of writing done during April and August, and then I often try to squeeze in another 30 day marathon sometime during the month. 
Um, and then in between, it's kind of catch as catch can. So these are little poetry vacations, basically. They are, for, yeah. Right. It really requires like setting aside the 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 time. Uh, for me, it's in the evening. Like I'll, I'll put my books aside and I won't read right before bedtime. I'll sit with a notebook rather than sitting with a book, mm-hmm. for instance. I have to kind of swap that time out. Otherwise, I'm up too late and I get too tired and the poems aren't aren't good and I'm not happy about it. So I have to find good quality time. And I have to sort of, sort of say no to things for for a month or so, as if I'm in some sort of retreat. Hmm. Um, so mysteriously, I'm not showing up for that, you know, tennis clinic or whatever on Saturday morning because, you know, I've got poetry business to take care of. Okay. And, and are all of those doing those marathons, those are then done with, or are you taking ideas and drafts from those marathons and work on them later on? Oh, I work them a lot. Okay. Yeah. Um, usually I would say out of, let's say, 30 poems, <coughs> excuse me, I will, oh, if I'm lucky, I might get, um, I might get eight poems that I think will turn into something useful. Um, and maybe out of that, there might be three or four that I think are pretty much almost good to go with with minor modifications. And then, you know, another handful that um, that I need to think a little bit farther on and need to develop more. And most of the rest of them I don't, I, you know, I don't go back to right away. But then in a couple of years, very often I'll go back to some of those those marathon poems and I'll go, oh, I like that stanza. I had something, I had a good idea there. Or I had a good premise or um, the first line is something that I should use. And so when I'm really in a kind of a ruthless revising mode and I have to, it's like that cleaning the closet mode where it's like, you know, I'm just going to take stuff out. Stuff's got to go. Uh, if I can get into that mood, sometimes I can go back to those poems that didn't have, didn't mm-hmm. seem to have possibility back then mm-hmm. and, I'll, and I'll find something and then I'll really try to work it out of that and, and add to it or even combine poems together, things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's all raw material. And yeah. uh, that I wouldn't have if I hadn't signed up for some crazy 30-day poetry marathon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's sometimes that kind of external commitment that gets you, keeps you going. Right, and yeah. it's extra important for me because mm-hmm. I do work full-time. Yeah, no, well, I it, can understand that. And that would be a good poem that maybe somebody's already done this, of the poem, writing poetry as cleaning the closet. Mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. just sort of... Yeah. Um, but I guess, I mean... You must be sort of constantly keeping notes and keeping a journal of things you want to write about. And um, I mean, what sort of things capture your attention as you... Oh, gosh. Yeah, I do. I have a special little notebook that somebody picked up at a book show for me. It's a cute little particular looking notebook, and I keep it at home. Um, And I keep it pretty much next to me all the time while I watch TV um, watch movies and sit and read, and it's always somewhere nearby. And I'll jot down, I'll jot down puns, I'll jot down misspellings. I love like crazy, like really funny internet misspellings. I have a whole series of those, only one of which I've turned into a poem so far. Um, Closed captioning is probably a good <laughs> yes, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> those are excellent. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but I, um, the the thing that I'm always looking for is something that is two things at once. Um, that's what will spark a poem for me. So it will be something that seems to be one thing on the surface, but there's a whole other mm-hmm. thing going on under the surface. Or it seems to be one emotion, but there's a cross emotion, at least mm-hmm. one, sometimes more, working underneath it. And it, if I can 
if it might be a quote, it might be an event, it might be something that happened to me or some a story that somebody told me, if I could jot down the bones of that so that I can remember those conflicting emotions, um, those are the most useful for me later on. In case you're just tuning in, this is Literary Ashland on KSKQ, and we're talking with poet Amy Miller. What do poets talk about when they get together? <laughs> oh, excellent. Oh, well, let's see. I'm in two uh, workshop groups. In fact, I'm meeting with one of them on Sunday morning. Um, we, we talk about other poets quite a bit. We talk about um, things we've been reading, things we've been readings that we've gone to, um, folks we've heard of, uh, you know, if there's a... The Pulitzer's, Pulitzer's were just announced, or the National Book Awards, or something like that. We might talk about that. A mm -hmm. um, little bit of gossip, but we um, and you know personal stuff like uh, our former poet laureate, Oregon poet laureate Peter Sears just died um, mm -hmm. less than a week ago, and several of the people in the group that I'm meeting with on Sunday knew him, so I'm sure we'll talk about Peter. Um, and yeah, and you know we get a little catty sometimes, and that's sort of the you know. That's our privilege for having been in the business for a while. Uh, we, we joke around about, uh, you know, little mishaps that have happened out there in the industry and missteps and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and, and all the usual, yeah. all the usual stuff. That Sometimes it's just a lot of hanging around and, and, uh, and having coffee. You know, I really enjoy that part of poetry groups. Workshopping is, is great, but I, I like just the social interaction with people who are kind of on the same page, pardon the pun. That's right. The work work can always be put off for a few minutes. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Well, and I, I know you're you're the um, poetry editor now for the Jefferson Monthly. That's right, Jefferson Journal. Jefferson Journal, right? New the new name. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about that? How do, how do you select poems? Or? Mm, yeah. Um, let's see. Well, most of them come through over the transom. Um, we have an actual slush pile. Oh, good. We should. Uh, do we need to explain what a transom is to our? No. Yeah, people will know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, but we we get so we have a we have a big listening area, right? It goes mm -hmm. from uh, Eureka or somewhere around in there, all the way up to Eugene and way out east and all the way mm -hmm. to the coast. So, um, so it's quite a lot of people, and and the there are a lot of subscribers to the to the magazine, a lot of members of JPR. So it's a pretty big pool to pick from, and um, and there are a lot of poets in that pool. So we get all kinds. We get we get professional folks sending poems in. We get um, people who have never published a poem before sending poems in. We get high school kids sometimes. Um, all kinds of people. It's really an interesting mix all the time. It's really kind of exciting to get that to get that submission every time it comes in. Um, occasionally, uh, I will publish some work by a writer who's coming to town to Bloomsbury mm -hmm. or someplace else or the library to do a reading if I can find out far enough in advance. Um, that's the trick. We're, we're working at least two months before the deadline, mm -hmm. so I'm working about four months before the, right. the yeah. uh, release date. So that's that's a little tough for people to get, get into sometimes if they plan their reading a little too late. And then when the Chautauqua uh, Poets and Writers series has a poet, we always publish a poem or two by that poet. Um, in advance of their reading in that in that issue right before they come to help um, promote the, the uh, reading and workshops a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
And once in a while, I just go out and find somebody. If there's somebody, usually in Oregon or in the Northwest, whose work I really like that I would like to promote more, sometimes I'll approach them and and say, I see these two poems, which, can I have them? Okay. Usually they say yes. That's a good way to do it. Yep. Good approach, yeah. When you are writing poetry, do you have a particular reader in mind or an ideal reader? Gosh, um, that's a really good question. I don't think I've, I guess I don't because I've really never thought about that. Um, I I think I, I always feel like I'm writing to one person. So maybe it's somebody I, that I don't even that I who's in there subconsciously that I don't even think that I'm writing to, and it's probably somebody from a long time ago. Um, somebody really smart though, because it's like okay, you gotta you gotta keep up here, you know. So it's, it's, it's like those postcards. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've got one person right. in mind. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the postcard thing is kind of interesting because sometimes I write them. Um, what's it called? Um, you know when you. Uh, Pistolary, where you oh, right. you, you start out, dear so and so. You write it as a mm-hmm. as a letter, yeah. um, and that makes it so much more intimate. Even though I'm writing, putting the person's name on it, I have never seen this person. I don't know anything about them, but somehow it changes the mm-hmm. poem a little bit, right? Because I'm talking to that really specific person mm-hmm. and thinking, what would they, what should they hear, or you know, what yeah. will they respond to? Well, and speaking of hearing, could we hear another poem? Sure. Yeah. Let's see. I'm going to change gears here, get away from the um, New England theme. So this is another one from the the book that's coming out next year. Um, the middle part of the book is is two sequences of poems braided together, and one of the sequences is actually about the Rogue River, um, odd in a book about New England supposedly, but that's how it goes. Um, and then the other series is all about uh, grief, but it's grief seen through the lenses of pop culture and everyday objects um, and things that you would not normally associate with grief. It's a, a fairly short poem, this one. Um, this is called The Grief as the Universal Translator on Star Trek. Say, Father, and it says, First Horse. Say, My Love. And it says, the wild. These planets are all my planets. Their tongues, my lost and speeding insect songs. Come on, Scotty. Everybody dies in the stirred-up gel of somebody's transporter. Haven't you ever beamed back, divided? And what's this backward language now? It says, my baby's gone missing, when all that blew up was a world. The Universal Translator, mm-hmm. Grief. I, I think I can work that into a linguistics class at some oh. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was the idea of every every word coming back with an echo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, here, here's another one. Mm-hmm. And, and so you've got science fiction poems and all mm-hmm. sorts of... Yeah, well, I, I I grew up with sci-fi with mm-hmm. with my my dad um, loaning me all of his science fiction books and and a couple of my first poem publications were in Asimov's science fiction. In fact, I just got another poem into there. It'll be out I think next year oh. um, after quite a long layoff, and they have a different editor now and everything. So I was really pleased to get in there again. Yeah, excellent. That's real. That's a real coup. Yeah, yeah. That's Definitely. yeah. That reaches a lot of people, and it's uh, uh-huh. everybody knows that name exactly. 
Uh, any advice that you might have for budding poets? Oh out there? gosh. Oh, um, uh, get into a workshop group. I mm. always recommend that people um, find some like-minded folks to to sit around and and critique each other's work. Be gentle with it. Be nice and mm-hmm. treat them as as you would be treated. But it's it's invaluable, I think, especially early on. To run your work by somebody else and just see how it's resonating and and see uh, what might be redundant, what's missing, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And um, and I also tell people you, you have to have a, th- a thick skin if you want to get published out there. If, if that's your goal, um, just know you're going to get rejected a lot, and it's going to hurt you. And um, and stick with it, and that's the only way uh, the only way to do it because everybody's got to do it. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the show today. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Great fun. It's been great to have you here and Uh hear about your work and your process and and the upcoming book next year, The Trouble with New England Girls. Congratulations. Should should be out about a year from now, I think, next July. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. All right, well, that's it for this month's edition. The next show will be on August 25th. So until then, have a good month. Okay, that's it.